Premier League on OTB. Exclusive Premier League live commentaries every Sunday. The very best expert analysis on your phone and for free. Download the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. But we're going to start off by getting straight into the Sunday Papers, as we always do on a Sunday. Uh, so I'll start by running you through the uh, back pages. So Sun Sport here has a picture of uh, Jack Grealish. Manchester City beat Norwich by five goals to nil uh, yesterday. Here we go. 100 million pen Jack on target. Jack Grealish has his uh, two fingers in his ears as if he's blocking out all the criticism, which uh, he supposedly has been on the receiving end of. I haven't heard much of it, to be honest, but uh, I guess we all have our own siege mentalities going on. That's the back page of The Sun. Uh, Sunday World then, it's the hurling here taking the lead. Limerick against Cork, All-Ireland final, throws in half past three. Uh, We're all set for a super McCarthy party is the headline. And then we have uh, the Sunday Independent and uh, picture of the Limerick hurlers in a huddle. And the headline is greatness in their grasp, which I suppose it is. It would be three and four years and two in a row really uh, stamp their authority on this era, the rebels stand between Limerick and immortality. And then beneath that, a story by uh, Matt Law, 100 million pound rice priced out of move to top four clubs. So it seems Declan Rice uh, pretty unhappy with West Ham. He was uh, looking to move away, says the piece, spending his summer with England players who are playing for top four clubs only. Um, furthered his interest in playing Champions League football and he's not too happy because West Ham slapped a £100 million price tag on him which he felt priced him out of any kind of move so he's what 22 years of age uh, Declan Rice and he still has well in effect three years he has this year and then another two to go in the contract so uh, West Ham holding all the aces so they slapped £100 million uh, price tag on him and he has gone nowhere the uh, Back page of the Mail on Sunday then, they're going all out on the hurling. It's Empire Strikes Back, revitalised rebels to use the force of history as they seek to end Limerick's, uh, Limerick's dominant rule. And they boast inside preview special, O'Dignan, with uh, Dignan rather, Ben O'Connor, Kyle Hayes and much more. And then beneath that, Leona Maguire, who I just mentioned, Leona's major push, Maguire primed for final day surge at uh, Carnoustie, which would be quite something. She's been in brilliant form of late. Uh, we have uh, the Sunday Times uh, picture of Jack Grealish this time hands not in the ears just uh, celebrating yesterday he's up and running uh, Grealish scores on home city debut in 5-0 demolition of Norwich uh, two um, stories beneath that in the Sunday Times from Page Kane could feature for uh, Tottenham at Wolves so it seems he's in the squad has travelled to Molyneux and uh, should feature he's been training with the team this week and then over on the right hand side uh, Duffy reborn at Brighton uh, this is Shane Duffy, who had a goal and a man of the match performance yesterday. Graham Potter uh, says he's delighted with for him. I'm really happy for Shane. He's had a really, really tough year on and off the pitch, said Potter, in reference to uh, the sudden death of Duffy's father, Brian, at the age of 53. Uh, he's been in lockdown in a strange city and it hasn't gone well in terms of what was happening on the pitch. Obviously talking about last year at uh, Celtic. So he said he's back, he's enjoying his football and enjoying his life. And there were photos doing the rounds yesterday on Twitter of uh, Shane Duffy and Aaron Connolly chatting with Stephen Kenny, who was at the game on the uh, sideline afterwards. And then finally, uh, Sunday Mirror Sport. Oh, yeah, very sad news this. Terry McDermott, exclusive on the back page here of the uh, Mirror. Uh, I've got dementia. So 
This is uh, John Richardson with the story. Terry McDermott, the latest football legend to reveal that he's been diagnosed with dementia. The former Liverpool and England midfielder has announced his battle against the disease just a few days after Manchester United hero Dennis Law revealed he has Alzheimer's and vascular uh, dementia. So he was at the game for uh, Liverpool in his uh, capacity as a matchday host yesterday, it says here, against Burnley. He said, I've just got to get on with it and I will. I'm not frightened and we've seen there are a lot of former players in a worse state than me. So that's the back page there of the uh, mirror. Very happy to say we have Paul Rouse with us, Professor of History at UCD and Dion Fanning as well, Associate Editor at The Currency. Dion, uh, Terry McDermott just there on the back page and Dennis Law this week as well. It is um, unfortunately for the game and obviously more unfortunately for the various footballers, a uh, procession now of men of a certain age who've played football coming forward with the same diagnosis. Yeah, it's um, it's tragic. And I think, um, you know, not quite one by one, but as as some of our heroes and our, our players that we grew up as children kind of learning about and being told about, uh, like Dennis Law, and I do remember... Terry McDermott and what what a dynamic player he was as it, it is you know the, the numbers now and I think we've known for some time that there there is a, a connection and you know we, we like anyone who watched the fantastic Jack Charlton film as well the documentary um would be kind of you know so aware of 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 the of this um not quite not an epidemic but this this link between between football and dementia and how um how it's ravaging uh, so many former players and um i don't know where it's going to go where it's going to end up because we've seen in rugby uh it's 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 escalated into into you know into something else into like sort of legal um pursuits and i think they're you know that's that's something that uh football may be be open to may happen or it may like if you know again rugby being being the kind of the blueprint in some ways like how much are you prepared to with the knowledge that you have how how far are you prepared to go to to change and to protect players um as much as you can but on an individual level when you see these great former players um, coming forward. It is it is desperately sad. Yeah, I was just reminding myself of the statistics because there was a research earlier this year produced by the University of Glasgow. Professor Willie Stewart headed up that research. And so professional footballers up to five times uh, as likely to develop dementia throughout their lifetime as the average population position on the pitch dictates things. Goalkeepers are uh, similar at similar risk to the general population but for outfield players chance of developing the disease, the disease almost four times higher and then among defenders presumably because they're heading the ball that jumped to a five-fold in- increase uh, professor willie stewart university of glasgow said the sport could no longer ignore the risks posed to players he suggested sports governing bodies urgently consider whether to remove the practice of heading the ball from non-professional games and to include a health warning on the packaging of football equipment i always remember paul rouse um talking to a former rugby player and he had a great line he said you know exercise is good for your health professional sport isn't i think that's one of those things that 
is is fundamental uh, to the image that people have of sport, that sport is good for you. Well, it's not necessarily good for you if it's carried on or played in a certain way, if it's not if it's managed in a in a in a particular way. And I would have thought that the long term drift here, if you take other sports uh, um, as anything to go by, is cha- is rule changes. And ultimately, I think the logical end point of this is restrictions on heading the ball or restrictions in which contest for ball because it's not just heading the ball that that is that issue here it's a clash of heads between people when when they go for the ball and it only needs to happen a couple of times in a career for it to have extremely significant impacts on 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 someone's longer term longer term health i think there's a that's like that that line about professional sport not being good for you does get to the the, the the truth of it like the sausage factory that is professional sport uh whatever sport you're talking about it, it isn't it isn't pleasant when you go inside and and um and in in this area i think especially because you know we talk about exercise being good for you but we also have ideas of what team sport uh and we all you know many of us sign up to it uh to, to varying degrees with our with our children, you know, the team sport is character building. It's good to understand all this kind. Of, you know, it, it teaches you certain values. Um, but within that, and as you go further, it it demands. You know, this idea that it, it is revealing of character is has been is been used. Like there are tests within sport to actually see. Let's see what character you have. And I remember talking to a former. Uh, uh, sports person about this as well and they were talking about concussion and these things they're saying these are things we use as metrics to assess the character of the people in our dressing room <laughs> you know like how much does he fancy it is he going to put his head in where it hurts mm. uh, this is how this is how a dressing room kind of organizes itself between the people it feels it can rely on and the people that it can't um, and now in rugby, for example, that has to change. But again, you see it in football all the time. The like it's still there. This idea that if if somebody you know that there's there is a bravery element in somebody getting a whack on the head and going back out to play, um, and you know that that is deep. That is hardwired within within the culture and and breaking that. And look, like you know, if you go back to Terry Butcher. In England in '87, I think it was against Yugoslavia, and you know, coming off the pitch with the bloodied head, you know, headband, and that was seen. That was character. That was this is what you want from your leaders. Um, so dismantling that, and it has to be dismantled to a certain degree. Dismantling that while while retaining some aspects of of this idea is going to be very tricky. Now, I actually think an awful lot of that is suspect anyway. Um, but I think it is it is the kind of it is the kind of it is the myth on which a lot of professional sport has organized itself. Yeah. I, think I, I would agree with that, except I, I would add to it. I, I, I wouldn't draw the distinction just at professional sport. I think it is organized sport in general. The idea that even if you're not paid for like the wages of amateur sport are the medals that you win or, or the matches that you win in place and people push themselves to play injured. Or to and in the course of competitive sport, uh, end up injured in an attempt to win, and and I don't think the border is just professional sport. I think it's competitive sport in general lends itself to that. Yeah, interesting. I when when the Simone Biles uh, 
uh, on a drama unfolded at the Olympics, and you know you could see a reaction in 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 and it almost like a you know the culture war has become a cliche now, but that sort of split between people who felt certain you know a, a, an athlete or a sports person should respond in a certain way and others who didn't and i remember at the time thinking that it reminded me a bit i remember roy Keane writing in his, his second book about um playing a cup semi-final where they played uh manchester united were playing arsenal and on the morning of the game rude van nisteroy came back came down and said uh yeah I, i'm not sure i'm going to play today i've got a you know my hamstring is at me and and Keane looked at him like he was a deserter, you know, like this was like, what what is wrong with you? Like my you know my my body is killing, you know, my body is aching, um, and you know I'm going to put my body on the line. And you know in the book, in the, this is the second book he did with Roddy Doyle. Keane says, you know, who's the fool now? Like Rude 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 looks fantastic and played till whatever age he played till, whereas you know Keane. Um, and again, you can debate it and you can debate who did more. But as Paul said, like this is this is, you know, you put your body on the line like this is what Keane Keane believed in, in that myth. And then it, it was interesting to see that when he finished his career, he looked back and said, hold on, who was who was benefiting from me believing in these myths? Yeah. Well, Terry McDermott there on the back page of the mirror, just as you were talking, by the way, about uh, the various sports. I mean, football does not have its house in order on this issue still, even with this procession of former players coming out now and even with the science I just quoted at the top of the show from the University of Glasgow. I mean, you think of Euro 2020 and Benjamin Pavard was basically concussed on the pitch and got some treatment and continued playing. And this is a sport where, you know, you're very likely to head the ball again. And he was saying even after the match, I mean, France sent him out to do interviews. They were so, they seemed to think there was so little of an issue here. If this was rugby, the player in question would not be let anywhere near the media. But Pavard's out there afterwards in the mix zone saying, I took a hell of a shock. I was a little knocked out for 10 to 15 seconds. After that, it was better. And he finished the game, you know. So football is miles behind, I think, when it comes to uh, concussion. Even though they all signed a concussion charter at the start of that tournament, that happened under the full glare of the world's media. To uh, move this to All-Ireland final day then, so we have Limerick and we have Cork. You both picked out Dermot Crow on page four and five. I'm conscious a lot of people podcast this slot as well on a Monday, so we'll try and keep the chat, chat uh, relatively general as well and and not too uh, date-specific. So A Tale of Two Cities. It's just a really um, good angle, really interesting piece, and, and you have two cities, I suppose, who had to get their house in order, and they were coming from maybe different um, tradition points you know, Cork had let things slip from a, a one-time kind of golden era in the 70s and uh, Limerick were trying to get things going almost for the first time in what was very much a football city and a rugby city. So uh, Dermot Crow here in the Sunday Independent spoke to various people who've been involved over the last decade and it does seem the last decade has been key in both cities. So he talks, for instance, in Cork to Paddy O'Brien, who's a games development administrator, administrator and... They're talking here about the fact that in Cork, in about 2009, when they were trying to get things off the ground, in some city schools, you had less than 10% of the kids playing GEA or playing any sport. That's where we started. We started in the schools. We got the coaches upskilled. We were focusing on getting the numbers up, getting participation in the city up. And talks about how uh, when Rebel Og started off in 2011 to revitalise juvenile activity, we started introducing monster blitzes for under 8s and 10s. That developed... Now every child within the city 
knew what days they were playing hurling or football. They knew the structure. To me, that was the most important thing. The kids had a plan and then the parents could plan around it. They were all non-competitive and that seemed to get things moving there. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, the story in Limerick, I think, has been relatively well documented. The amazing work done there over the last uh, 10 years. So Pat Cullan is uh, spoken to. He had spent 16 years as a GA employee, more recently uh, worked as a national development officer. So he spent a lot of time working in Limerick City. And basically he was talking about how a survey once showed that only five of the 23 post-primary schools in Limerick City and County treated hurling as their first field game. Uh, so where are we now? 20 years later, uh, Limerick launched its blueprint uh, for the future called Lifting the Treaty in 2008. Lifting the Treaty, I think, is, uh, has been much discussed and talked about. So Lifting the Treaty launched in 2008. So by 2011, 57% of primary school children in Limerick City were playing Gaelic games compared to just 8% five years earlier. So in five years, they went from 8% to 57% in Limerick City playing GEA. Uh, when Cullahan was appointed in 05, just eight of the city's primary schools competed in the under 10 hurling games programme. Just five of the 15 clubs in the city had nursery programmes. Five years later, the number of clubs competing in that under 10 uh, competition had increased from 8 to 22. The number of clubs running nursery programmes had doubled from 5 to 10. The culture has now changed for the better and hurling has a status like it never had in the city before. And like amazing work done, Paul, you'd have to say, in the two cities. It is, and there are basics here that are the same across the GEA in every county, whether it's a rural area or an urban area. There are three basic things that, that determine how a county can progress from a starting point, and that is the rate of participation of the people within the county, and essentially by that I mean the kids in at, of national school level and then secondary school level, number one. Number two, quality coaching. And I don't mean in quality coaching just the capacity of people to show you how to hold a hurley and how to swing it and 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 to have you know intense drills or all of those things that's only one aspect of it it's more than that as well it's the ability to inspire kids to go away and practice themselves because what you do in that hour that you have a kid twice a week is not going to make them proficient uh, at the sport you have to inspire an interest in in the game so you get participation you get adequate coaching of a different level and number three you have to have a games program and the story of cork and limerick and limerick are ahead of cork in this and in, in their cycle is the story of the provision first of all of those three things and they are the bedrock of what any significant successful county tries to do when it when, when it rejuvenates itself and it is very very hard to do this in urban areas and you you have to look for example at inner city dublin look at the area between the canals on the north side there's a little there's work going on with st brendan's ga club on the north side and on the south side between the canals there's kevin's hurling club and after that there is nowhere near adequate provision for the number of kids who are in, or in in urban areas and you ask why that is but partly it's to do with a grounds infrastructure places to play number one number two the focus within many ga areas has been the shift to the widening middle classes and that's just a simple fact if you look at it around the place and if you look at the success of dublin gea in the last in the last while it is driven by um kind of powerhouse clubs in middle class areas and the story though in limerick and cork it's really interesting that uh, pat should say that hurling now has a status in the city that it never had before well that's a tribute to work of investment and time and also the commitment of money to do that because you cannot do that w w without money being put to, to resource schools 
to resource playing grounds and to, to pay for the people to go into those schools and to upskill teachers and everything that goes around it. And it's long, slow work. And I love the fact, though, I love the point that, that Pat says, and it's, it, it's a really, really good point. Thought, even if you don't win medals, even if you don't win All-Irelands, what it is is the provision of access to play a sort of sport for all across these areas for people who will not go on and keep playing into adult areas and will not make an elite senior team or mightn't even mightn't even play adult club hurling but they have a memory and a connection to a game that they played when they were when they were in primary school or in secondary school yeah uh, Dermot Crow writes later on hurling this is of Limerick by the way hurling is now enjoying a popularity in the city it never had before and had huge potential growth when Munster began their Heineken Cup campaign last year, shortly after Limerick regained the All-Ireland, just two of the team, Conor Murray and Keith Earls, were from Limerick. The decline of the AIL has impacted on rugby's uh, welfare and wider appeal. Hurling's made significant inroads in Castle Troy College, where rugby has a strong presence, and Ardskull Reach, the alma mater of Paul O'Connell. They won five hearty cups that produced some of the best Limerick hurlers of recent times. Uh, Dion, you picked out this piece as well. It was a nice angle on the approach, or a nice angle to take um, in advance of the final. Yeah, um, and I think what the the passage you you quoted there, Joe, is is interesting as well because it does, um, it it starts off by, uh, with a quote just above that from from Mick Graham, who says Limerick is a soccer city. They can say what they want about Limerick hurling and Munster rugby, rugby, but Limerick is a garrison town. And soccer is the number one sport in the inner city, and we are an inner city club. Um, and then it goes on. And at that point, that piece you mentioned there about the uh, only two players from Limerick on the uh, uh, when Munster began their Heineken Cup campaign last year, and that feeds into what Paul was talking about too. I think about you know people say, and it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. People talk about it's not about success, and there is very strong case made throughout this piece for you know it is about getting people to play in especially in those inner city areas and it's not about medals but without that success how successful can that be if you like because you know i wonder when you look at like limerick rugby there and you talk about that like the fact that uh okay munster would have obviously had a huge um resonance and uh and resonated deeply in the city of limerick um, but it can also shift with with the shift away it, when when players are, aren't necessarily from Limerick. Does that identity dilute in any way? I don't know. Like Limerick being a soccer city, um, that's fine. But like soccer is, I think like the places that are traditionally soccer cities are struggling in Ireland in terms of growth in certain degrees because we don't have in, in you don't have in soccer those identifiable success stories because it's harder it's harder to uh, be a success um, for an Irish footballer. So like the the um, the hurling sides are, are well placed. You know, Limerick hurlers are well placed to kind of fill that fill that void if you like and become the 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 role models um, and the and the and the success stories for future generations. So I don't know if it is possible uh without that success um and i know you said and it is an intro like it's, it's a very very detailed piece and i know as you said Joe, this has been covered before a lot and it is mentioned a lot and it has been covered over. i do find it interesting that jp mcmanus isn't mentioned mm. in this piece uh because like how 
how much of Limerick's success would have been possible without J.P. McManus. And, um, you know, when we talk about, when Paul talks about how many, you know, this is what every county has to do, how many counties are able to do what Limerick are doing, what Cork are doing. You look at, you look at the picture that comes of Pete and you see it, and we'll see it today, Cork with Sports Direct on their on their jerseys like these are these are superpower counties and they all have um access like it was interesting i was reading this week about you know shane lowry uh and you know what he did for 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 offley and we saw them winning the the under 20s last weekend and actually drove i was down in offley last night and i drove through the past the uh the center of excellence there and it's you know i i driven by it many times and it is you know it's such a phenomenal uh facility um but you know he said like shane larry has said has credited you know jp mcmanus for giving him the advice on how to help uh gaa in his county and it was invest in put good structures in place invest in the underage get the underage going so without that backing how many clubs are and i i don't know coming as a as a as a you know an outsider in some degree i don't know what how many counties can do this Hmm. what's your sense of that paul yeah it's a really good point about the importance of of money and in particular the importance in this instance of jp mcmanus's money every county you have to have proper resourcing and it's why i I suppose it, it i get a little bit annoyed when people talk about revised structures in championships adult championships and senior inter-county championship as if that's a fix to make things competitive that what that is is it's that's the lipstick on 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 the idea what has to happen is proper resourcing of each county's proper funding of coaching structures in each county and um dion of course living the dream being an awfully on a saturday night but (laughs) was in driving in driving past the 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 center of excellence that was that was funded over the course of many years of, of fundraising by a committee within the county who presented it debt free. They they raised money over a series of years and used it and it's being used as a building block to come true. And the really interesting thing with Shane Lowry, Shane Lowry uh, came on board basically at the start of this summer. And the players that have been produced through Offaly over the last four or five years through the, a proper strength and conditioning program, a proper skills program, proper development squads, and now a developing games program over the last while, because the manner in which Offaly is 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 now being administered has been revolutionary in terms of what is now being proven possible in 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 all of this. But why Shane Lowry matters is not just because he has donated some money. It's because him being associated with it has added to the profile of it and has brought other people in who now want to work and now themselves want to contribute. So it feeds on itself. And Dion's point is really well made about how if you get success locally, it can, it, it, for a local team, it can inspire people to, to get involved. There is no doubt that that is, there's no doubt that that is the case. What it does, though, is it makes the job easier. Look at it this way. Cork GEA fell into a slump at the very moment when its team was winning All-Irelands mm. at the beginning of the new millennium because the structures weren't there, because the work was not done from the future. So it's not the success in itself that allows this to happen. It's the it's the ongoing work and it can never stop. And the minute it stopped, awfully basically collapsed for 20 years because of the really poor way 
in which the county was run in terms of the provision of a games program at underage level and at senior level. And without the proper provision of a games program, you are absolutely at nothing and you do not have widespread widespread um, engagement with any sport. Yeah. The other, the other thing about that is, and the other interesting point about that is, um, you know, reading that Dermot's piece, you know, it reminded me of lots of pieces I've, I've read in football over the years about how clubs have done it, what they're doing. You know, you can read it about Manchester City in some degree, uh, and that would definitely be a club that's, you know, doing it because of the money that's available. But there is also there is also uh, a convergence of factors, including luck. Like, I, how many articles did we read um, 15 years ago about, about La Masia and the Barcelona Academy and what they were doing um, and how great they were? And I remember going to Clairefontaine um in, in in outside Paris and you're know, writing about the, the the miracle of you know this this place that seems to produce endless footballers and yet you know La Masia being the perfect example there was also a moment in time when a, a certain group of of people and, and and footballers came together and produced this wonderful side and it it doesn't you can you the structures are essential, but there are other factors too, which are are more in the in the lap of the gods and structures or money. And it is just sometimes you also need that that you know those those collection of players to come come about, and sometimes they just come about, and you can never you can never actually um, replicate how that happened. Well, it's a- also hard to win. Like yes, it's hard yes. to win in any championship. It's hard to win. It's it's like an it's not it is luck, but it's all it's timing. It's almost everything working out for you is what helps you to win. Well, Limerick's luck is in at the moment, so we'll see how that goes this afternoon. Like I said, there's a whole range of pieces. There's a very good piece Dennis Walsh has written on Patrick Corgan. It would be great in many ways to see his career capped off with an All Ireland. He'll probably be the all-time championship top scorer by the end of next season. And just his work rate is detailed here uh, by Dennis brilliantly from day one, like to the extent that um, when he first came on the scene, the Cork management had a quiet word to say there was no need to be on the field at quarter to six for seven o'clock sessions. And apparently the Cork management team conscripted a spy at his uh, club as an extra layer of surveillance. And sometimes he'd practice in the mornings before going to work. Sometimes he'd arrive in the field a few hours after a Cork match as if that recreational puck around was his way of winding down and then uh, there was one uh, morning after a Munster Championship match he was inside the gym the next morning hopping a medicine ball off the wall so it seems Patrick Corgan for all the talent is a freakishly hard worker as well that's on page 12 of the there's a brilliant uh, there's a brilliant clip in the ringy documentary that came out last year it's a beautiful film and in it Patrick Horgan is given one of Christy Ring's own or Hurley in the shape of Christy Ring's old Hurley, of course, Glen Rovers and everything that that means in, in that area. And it's it's remarkably different than a modern Hurley, the type of Hurley that Patrick Horgan would use on a, on a base. And for the first couple of minutes, he's kind of struggling to do the things that he would ordinarily do easily. But he just, it then just clicks, he just gets the hang of it. Mm. And even with a Hurley, almost, but with the boss almost half the size of the one that he has now, he can, he can do extraordinarily skillful things. And when you see Patrick Horgan, playing and scoring frees, it's a shock when he misses. When he has the ball in his hand or when he stands over a free, it is a shock that he misses. And because it's a shock, you kind of take for granted almost the skill that's involved in what he does. And it, it should be celebrated what he can do. And if if Cork win today, it will be worth it for Patrick Organ to, to, 
to to be to to win his All Ireland medal. Yes. Well, we'll take a short break. We have Paul Rice with us and Dion Fanning with us. That's the uh, hurling covered. There's loads of coverage, as you might imagine, across the back pages and right through the Sunday sports pages. But we have other pieces we're going to get to. We'll do that next. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now then, you're very welcome back. Uh, Paul Rouse is with us, Professor of History at UCD. We have Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. We are going through the Sunday papers. You both still had a bit of a thirst for some Dublin Mayo talk, so a range of pieces here. We have uh, Shane McGrath in the Mail on Sunday, I thought making the fair point that uh, this brilliant Dublin team shouldn't be overly romanticised and that they were as uh, cynical when they were winning as they were in the dying stages on Saturday mentions 2013 mentions 2017 he does add I mean as well there's a bit of nuance to it as well he does say you know most teams are to be fair he says uh, there has scarcely been a championship winning team in hurling our football that haven't possessed the capacity to push the rules as far as they were allowed Dublin were not unique in that but nor were they a saintly collective who pursued only the higher path Uh, sport reflects not just the best of us but rather it exposes the full gamut of human strengths and failings Dublin rise and fall contain them all the good and the bad and uh, he says that that's more of the truth than you know on the rare occasions when they spoke to the media many of the players um, involved with the teams and especially the previous management spoke of a group that sought to follow sports most noble virtues and maybe that wasn't entirely uh, the case even though they talked about it a lot We have uh, Colm O'Rourke here in the Sunday Independent. He says there is no logical or rational explanation for what happened in the second half and extra time. Sometimes a game takes on a life of its own. Strange things happen. Remember, Dublin were still well in control of this game with 10 minutes left. Uh, Joe Brawley then, a kind of interesting uh, point. Dublin played through uh, depths of indifference, I suppose, without wanting to kind of overly... Uh, surmises article in uh, a line or two he says himself Dublin are bored they went through the motions last uh, Saturday like a husband soullessly making love to a wife he no longer has any interest in is uh, how Joe puts it he says uh, first half one of the dullest sporting events I've been present for Um, he says for now I'm thinking of uh, Brian Fenton waking up on Sunday morning surprised and relieved that this procession of endless victory is over I'm betting he was surprised that he wasn't really that disappointed. He can console himself with the fact that it's happened to all of the greats. After his year out escaping the tedium of victory, Michael Jordan came back to lead the Bulls to three consecutive championships. Winning is boring. Sometimes you just need a break. I wonder, uh, Paul Rice, is that part of the Dublin story? Sometimes you just need a break from the endless winning. Um, I, I would say the last thing Dublin wanted was a break from their endless winning. Dublin wanted to win last Saturday and win again and win again. That team has been built on winning. And as Shane McGrath points out, that Dublin team are willing to do whatever it took to win, as they did against Mayo in 2017, and so on. That is not in any way to diminish their skills or how brilliant they were, but they had an edge, and they have they, they, were, they have a cynical edge to them and have had a cynical edge to them. And to deny that, Dublin people may not want to to, to acknowledge that, but it is, an, as Shane McGrath points out, or the headline points out, we should not take a romanticised, unrealistic view of what it takes to win, and that's what that's what they do. I disagree where, with Cullum um, when he said that Dublin were still in control with 10 minutes left. Dublin were up with 10 minutes left, but they had lost control of this game shortly after half-time when they didn't score in the period before the water break. Their discipline was already running ragged, and you can see the explanation. There is a logic to why they lost, and I think the logic is twofold. First of all, uh, their players aren't as good as they once were, 
uh, those who are brilliant footballers have left the team and the people who have replaced them are not quite as good in certain instances. Number two, I, I would I would have a question as to how Dublin's physical condition was as that game rolled on. They had key players who looked like they were uh, they were gassed towards the end of that game, and that can be seen most obviously by the failure to help David Byrne out when he was isolated in the corner. That's the second point. Number three, there's a logic to why Mayo scored, and the logic is that 17 of Mayo's points, 12 of the 17 of Mayo's points came from turnovers that they took from Dublin. And that is a quite exceptional rate for a team. And that's a team that's under pressure and that was relentlessly happening to Dublin in the second half when Mayo pushed and pushed and pushed and put them on, 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 and put them on it. At the end of the day, Dublin scored um, very, very little. Basically two points in the last 60 minutes of football. Essentially three points in the last 60 minutes of football. It was, they, they, were, they were hounded from 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 the halftime break over and ultimately they cracked and it happens to teams is not to gain say their achievement or the best team ever to play Gaelic football who had in their ranks some of the best players and still have in their ranks by the way some of the best players ever to play Gaelic football but Mayo hounded them out of it and there is a logic to that Point four not really mentioned here in either piece by the way just seeing as we've uh, O'Rourke and Brawley open management They've lost uh, one of the great management teams, surely, of all time. I mean, when Manchester United lost Alex Ferguson, these pages would have been talking at length about David Moyes. And and that's not to, I don't want to discount the championship win last year, but there is, you know, some caveats that come with that championship win last year. I mean, the only kind of real reference to Dublin management is Colin O'Rourke, where he says, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to see that all was not well with Dublin. The breach of COVID regulations, the Cluxton affair, others leaving the panel showed that everything in the garden was not rosy. Uh, so that surely is the other point here, Paul. I mean, they've lost Gavin and Sherlock and all the experience and the brains trust there. And uh, the verdict is not in on the new management team yet. The one word that I think is most associated with Dublin football over the last six years is control. They control the story off the field. They control the game on the field. They were just better than everybody else. And they fe- they felt like they were always in control of the game. And if they lost, they would lose on their terms. And ordinarily, they never lost, of course. Didn't lose in championship and almost never lost in, in, in the league. And the story of this season is the loss of control. Loss of control in terms of COVID regulations. Loss of control of games where they should have been, for example, they're ahead of Mead at halftime in the Leicester semi-final. And the second half, they were, they were hanging on towards the end of of that second half. The story of the, of the Mayo game is loss of control of the game at halftime and then loss of control of their own discipline. So where does that come from? I'm a massive believer in individual responsibility when it comes to these things. I think the players themselves have to look at why that happened and why all of that happened. It's really easy to point the finger at management and say this is a management issue, but it's personal responsibility on to, as to how you conduct yourself both on and off field. That's that's the first point. Mm-hmm. This, the second point of it is there is an inherited authority in a dressing room when players have four, five, six All-Ireland medals. And is it... Is it easy to manage? Is it easy to walk into that? I, 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 I think it's the dressing room I'd probably most prefer to have walked into, given the number of, <laughs> given the amount of players that they had at their disposal. But that's not to say it wasn't without significant challenges. And there was a really interesting article in the Irish Examiner by Eamon Fitzmaurice last Monday, where he duly played credit to the Dublin team and how brilliant they were. But he pointed at chaos on the sideline. He pointed even at the fact that, as he saw it, of a media manager being involved in kind of discussions on the sideline during the game. How can that be the case? So that would suggest 
a loss of a, a, a loss of kind of clarity of thought around what was happening. And I think it manifests itself, obviously, in the loss of discipline, but also the use of the ball. The one thing you associate Dublin with is use of the ball. Now, they won so many matches by ripping into teams and ripping through them and then managing in out games by holding the ball when they had to. But that managing out games became a strategy, as Sean Moore and rightly pointed out this week, almost of attack. Almost every attack felt laboured and we're not going to give it away. So it'd be interesting to know, one, number one, why that happened. And then when it came down to the end, when they really needed to manage the game, they started to lorry the ball in. Like this idea of Dublin hoofing the ball in, like brilliant footballers left with route one ball, trying to drop ball in on top of Brian Fenton in the square in the hope that they'll get a break and get a goal. I don't think anything spoke so clearly of Dublin's loss of control as, number one, the discipline, and number two, the, the use of the ball in the second half. Yeah. Dean, what jumped out to you about the coverage or the story generally? Well, I'm very, very interested listening to Paul on that because I like I, I do think, uh, I can only speak for myself, but I do find like an event like last Saturday night, like you, I, I, I come away from it going, just give me give me more on this. Like it was such a dramatic, and you know, it, like I, I think it's Joe Brawley who says the first half was, uh, was, was one of the worst games. One of the um, dullest sporting events I've ever been present for. Yeah. I've ever been present for. Um, and, uh, I, I, I missed, I missed, I missed a bit of that. So I only came into it and I, it reminded me there was the, the cricket world cup final a couple of years ago unfolded in a very similar way where it seemed to be, uh, I think it was the same day as the Wimbledon men's tennis final, and people were a lot of people, including myself, were flicking around. And then this game started unfolding in a way that you just couldn't take your eyes off it. And that was what happened last week as well. And I, I come away from it uh, going, just give me as much as you can, give me as many theories as you can <laughs> yeah. about this. Yeah. You know, I can, I'm, I, I'll, I'll take, I take everything you've got. And, uh, like as an aside, I thought like some of the reasons why like RT's coverage ended seemed to end very abruptly. Obviously, the game went to extra time, but it ended so they could show uh, Daniel Craig in Casino Royale last weekend. Um, now I don't understand. I, I don't know an awful lot about television scheduling, and this happened during the Euros a few times as well. But I would say bump Casino Royale and give me people talking about what what has happened here. End of era stuff great big theories they may or may not be true they may be horseshit um but just throw them all out there and let's get you know you know let's let's turn it into a two o'clock in the morning kind of <laughs> uh you know pub talk um and joe brawley's piece i think <laughs> does i don't maybe without the two o'clock in the morning stuff but it does it does have that it has that kind of a sense of okay i can i can get on board with with the theories he's he's and the ideas he's he's putting out there, whether whether they're correct or not, um, and you know, and, and just to go back on something Paul said there as well, like I, I just wonder, like when Joe says that they were bored, I wonder, like if that is one of those factors that could be present, because mm. when you talk about fitness, when you talk about individual responsibility, now that the control from the management seems to be a key thing, and the lack of, and, the, and that 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 change and that transition. But um, surely things like fitness and stuff come back to maybe do, do I do I want do I 
do do I have the appetite to go and do all the things I, I had to do? I, you know, I've done the you know the last five six years. Do do I do all that again? And often, um, Dion, for just one to two games a year, you know, yeah. just one to two thrilling occasions, you're giving up the previous six, seven, eight, nine months for yeah. a final, maybe and the semi final as well. But a lot of it was fairly dull, I would think, to go through the motions in. Leinster and, and then, then when you're yeah, doing it in COVID stuff. and all the COVID and I, I actually thought that COVID story was uh, like they broke the regulations but I thought this is this is uh, there'll be many ridiculous outrages during uh, this this thing and that was one of them because you know because they weren't defined as elite sport they weren't allowed to be training um, uh, now fine but it, like it, it was damaging but again this is uh, and like the GA has been driven, and to go back to again to link it into what we talked about before, is dri- dri- driven by this sort of arms race in terms of fitness. Like you know, we're we're uh, we're going to be training at nine o'clock on Christmas morning. Well, you know, screw you, we'll be we'll be training at five a.m. on Christmas morning. Well, that's nothing. We're going to train all through the night on Christmas Eve. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm. it's just this arms race has kind of driven the GA. But actually, an awful lot of time, I think. Uh, <laughs> Not necessarily. I think you look back and go, hold on, was that was that of any benefit to us? Was that was that was that smart or was it just like macho posturing because we wanted to be seen to be doing more than other people? But um, I think that there there was definitely a, a, a weariness about having to do this again. To, yeah. to go back to your point, Joe. I also think, and it's amazing, and we've all done this. Um, like you know, this game went to extra time. Dublin could have won this game. You know, Mayo came back. Um, we could be sitting here saying Dublin got away with it. All these things, and 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 yet, and I have, as I said, I have no problem with this. I want as much of this as possible. And yet, we pin so many grand theories and great great ideas onto a defeat, which was was mar- Like in the end, it was it it, it was comprehensive, and in the end, it all seemed to make sense but it, it didn't it didn't it didn't necessarily have to be that way although i would agree with what paul says in terms of like it was slipping away from them and i, and I watched it again uh and you, you 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 do see this and you know obviously they went so long without scoring and then an extra time hmm. it was it, the game the game that seemed to be it once it went to extra time it did seem to be yeah. over for them one uh Last uh, small point, Paul. I've only about a minute, sorry, a minute and a half uh, before I have to go to uh, ads and news headlines. Is just, you know, when Dion's talking there about wanting every theory and like connected to his veins, like hook, hook me in. I've had that experience all week. There's not a word I haven't read about this. There's not a podcast I haven't listened to. And it kind of made me, made me think, God, the other 95% of the championship feels so inessential. Like when these two meet, you get a glimpse of what Gala Games can be. And that's why it had to be Mayo that took down Dublin for the story to really work. It had to be Mayo. It, if Kerry, if Kerry had been the ones who dethroned Dublin, and ultimately I do think Kerry will win the All Ireland. But if Kerry had been the ones to dethrone Dublin, it would have been for me. Oh, so the most successful county of all time has just beaten the greatest, the greatest team of all time. Uh, you know, fine, but that leaves Mayo out in mm. the cold. And I think, 
I think what Mayo did is extraordinary. I, I do agree with Dion though as well. Like I, Dublin have slipped hugely from what they were, but they're still in the stop in the top couple of teams. They'll be back next year. Marco Shea says in the paper today that he thinks Dublin will win at least one of the next two All Irelands. Uh, they won't yeah. go two years, but I win them. I think that's true. But the extreme reactions are really interesting. If Rob Henley hadn't missed, if Rob Henley had missed the retake, people would have been saying typical Mayo. Heroic effort, but yeah, they yeah, come yeah. up short again. Yes, again. And, we'll, and uh, the Dublin are efficient and they yeah, find yeah. a way and they just get it done. But instead now it's about how Dublin had a meltdown. meltdown. How my own yeah. young players are fearless and all that. Sorry, I didn't give you enough time. I shouldn't have asked that question there. Short break, back uh, with Paul and Dion in just a second. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Welcome back. We'll be over to Crow Park this hour, starting our build-up to the hurling final. Tommy Welch and uh, Vinnie Hogan are standing by. Sarah Donovan is going to check in as well. We have Paul Rouse and Dion Fanning here looking through the Sunday papers. I uh, rudely uh, cut you off there, uh, Paul. had to go to ads and use headlines, but you were uh, talking about, well, will Dublin win another All-Ireland very soon? What's your own personal feeling as we wrap up on the GEA? Do you think Dublin will bounce back quite quickly here or some kind of uh, slump maybe to ensue? When you have players who are as brilliant as Dublin have, you're going to stay in the hunt for the next while. Enough of their players are in their mid to late 20s for Dublin still to be competitive. They have a huge issue with their defence and how they deal with ageing players who are no longer able to do it with players who have left the team and with players who have injured. I should say that two of the younger players who have proven to be very good who have come through, Sean Bugler and Robbie McDade, were essentially injured and although both came on late in the game, they were a massive loss to Dublin in, in those games. But that shows you the decline in the Dublin panel and it'll be really interesting to see, having watched Dublin underage teams in the last number of years, they seem to have produced a lot of the same type of football and they seem to have produced a lot of attacking wing backs type of player. And that's all fine, but you're, it's not clear where the next X-Factor player is. And you can see with Dublin over the last number of years, but one Dublin and the All-Irelands, yes, it's the system. Yes, it was the structure and the organisation, but they had players who were generationally brilliant who are now gone. And if I was in charge of the Dublin team, if I were somebody who were, were in charge of the Dublin team, I would be going to Paul Mannion and I would be going to Jack McCaffrey and I would say I would be placing pleading with them to come back because the loss of those two players in particular is is huge. But again, it, it, it's nothing is inevitable in this. Nothing is given in this. Kerry have built a great team, but Kerry still have to get by Tyrone next weekend. And then I think if they get to the final, I do I do see them beating Mayo, but Mayo too have improved uh, enormously and have room for improvement in the final because for all that last Saturday was thrilling when you look at the raw stats of the game and there were brilliant stats produced by Johnny Bradley in in RTE which is going on there are the stats which I presume Pat Spillane quoted from in the Sunday World today when he was giving out his stats they show how poor Mayo were in sections of the game in giving turnovers to Dublin in missing really easy scorable chances through the game so Mayo have space to improve and they're really going to have to be much better in the final than they were uh, against Dublin last Saturday. Uh, Dion Fan, sorry, yeah, come in. Jeez, Dion Fan, you can't get enough GA here. An hour on the radio talking GA. It's a change, Joe. Just, 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 just give, give me more. What, more. what more have you got to say here? This is what a night and Offley does for me, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, puts me back in touch with my roots. Um, uh, but no, I was just going to say on that, like I think it's interesting when people talk about Dublin will be back and Mick Foley in the Sunday Times today is a very good piece on Dublin and what they need to do. Um, but he, he, he mentions when Kerry, 
Kerry's defeat loss in, in 82 and the All-Ireland to, to Offaly, of course. Um, but uh, he says it took another defeat by Cork in 83 for Kerry to refit their team, but losing in 82 created the conditions for Kerry um, to, to drive on to win three more All-Irelands. Now, that is an interesting point to make, I think, because you know those three All-Irelands almost, for some reason, always seem like an afterthought to that, for that Kerry side. Like mm. the... The, the Kerry team, the great Kerry team is the team from, you know, 75, 76 up to 80, 81, 82. And then when they came back, it's seen as, you know, uh, uh, just the kind of the, the epilogue. Um, so like once that, once that uh, shy, those, uh, once that veneer of dominance is sort of, is dulls a little bit, I, I, I wonder if you can never be recovered the same way, especially with all the change. And I think the management one is a key one, especially when those things are, are part of the story as well. Yeah. On the um, Premier League front, then there's so much coverage across the papers, as you can imagine. A lot of it pretty inessential is the truth. And it just feels like filler. Uh, two interviews which kind of caught the eye. Jonathan Northcroft interviewed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this week and also Mark Noble. So. Mark Noble's kind of an interesting case, I suppose. Once um, Messi left Barcelona, Noble became the longest serving player in any of Europe's big five leagues. So 17 years, seven months and 21 days, is, uh, says uh, Northcroft. And he's in his final season with West Ham, age 34. I hadn't realised he was intending to retire at the end of this season. So he's in his 18th and final campaign on uh, the first day of pre-season. His wife, Carly, texted him and says, whatever happens, Mark, just try and enjoy this year and uh, there's some interesting bits and pieces here, some nice memories of growing up supporting West Ham. And, you know, he, he calls his dad, also called Mark, on the way in and out of training every day, which is kind of um nice thought, nice touch, and talks about going to Upton Park when he was younger. My mate's girlfriend's elder sister worked behind the kiosk, and it's probably terrible to say it, he says, but I used to give her a fiver for a hot dog, and she used to give me a tenner change. It was a great way of going to school with some extra money in my pocket. And... It seems like he, well, he comes across as a very decent fella here. So, for instance, when they were relegated, he had lots of offers to go, but he wanted to stay. He said, you can move around different clubs and get a bit of money, but I've created history at this club. Uh, in March, on his day off, Noble drove to Norwich to watch West Ham under-18s in the FA Youth Cup. He remembers as an academy lad buzzing whenever a first-team player took an interest. Noble visits the West Ham Academy every day, gets to know the kids and their parents. And then uh, of the pandemic... Jonathan Northcroft writes, the pandemic brought the biggest challenges of his captaincy. I was worried so much about the staff. I was worried about my players. We were doing charity stuff with the uh, captains and my own charity. Then Northcroft says Noble donated 35,000 pounds sterling to help vulnerable, isolated people in the area. Um, His wife told him she barely saw him during the pandemic. He was on Zoom screens all the time. And Northcroft says Noble led the players in a wage deferral to protect the jobs of ordinary workers at West Ham, Moyes and Cam Brady. They all took a 30% uh, wage cut. He says there was no way I was walking back into the canteen after lockdown and seeing our kitchen staff or physios taking pay cuts, given the money that we're all on. And of his wife, we've been together since we were 13, 14. We're from the same upbringing. My mum and her mum were friends when they were kids. She's phenomenal. I probably don't tell her enough and maybe she can read this now and know and will know. So I thought that was a, a great insight, really, in so much as you'll get to Premier League players into Mark Noble. The Solskjaer one felt a bit more of a missed opportunity to me, I have to say. It's it's to mark the 25-year anniversary of his, uh, I guess, senior debut and, and first goal for Manchester United. And 
you know, when he first arrived at the club, uh, Ferguson told him he'd be in the reserves for six months. And then on his first reserve game, he scored two and won a penalty and United had some injury problems. And so he was on the bench against Blackburn, came off the bench, scored after six minutes and ended that season with 19 goals. It was kind of him and Cantona who started most of those games. Like, they don't get into current day Manchester United, which is uh, fair enough, I suppose. He talked- is it fair enough, Joe? Yeah, well, I would say if that's it's the premise of the if if that's the premise of the interview, and I suspect that's how it was agreed. You know, let's mark the twenty-five year anniversary. Then, mm. I sort of get it. I sort of get it. And I you, you could argue, you could argue, he's talking about Manchester United day in, day out, day in, day out. So, but he's a manager you know. of Manchester United. Like, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is a former player, if uh, if this was. Andy Cole or if this was Teddy Sheringham or whatever great and this isn't this is this is it seems to me the 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 the, uh, the glass ceiling that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to keep hitting that he is there as as a glorified mascot um uh as 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 this great connection to the past without actually ever anyone saying like what is your can you like can you imagine an interview like this with Pep Guardiola um like, yeah, I kind of could. Can I think. you? Can I, you really, without actually saying, "Let's talk about your management now"? Let's, um, like, let's talk about your, your, you know, your ideas and the fact that you're one of the great visionaries for, you know, for better or for worse. You, you are an obsessive uh, football manager. Um, like, I, I could I, imagine Pep doing, for instance, like. Uh, Let's, yeah, okay. let's talk. Just, let's talk about Euro ninety. Or let's talk about the Europe, European Cup final of ninety two, and and let's do a piece on that. I mean, I sort of can. Yeah. Um, I do take but your I, point I, as well. I, I, I think you could, but I also okay. Like, maybe you, maybe twenty five years know, on from scoring against Blackburn is a bit of a stretch. But you would also know that he is coming with. Okay, the, I, I you could do it, but you would also know that, that Guardiola is coming with this weight of 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 a managerial CV. He's proven. Like, this is the point. Yeah, let me let me rephrase that. He has proven himself. I think as a manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer should be doing everything possible to make people forget that he just played for Manchester United. And hmm. uh, that is that is really that's I've, I'm I've not got sure. To, Dion. I've I'm got not, my I'm, argument. I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure. I think I think the merit of the piece from Solskjaer's point of view is that he's saying, look, I came here for a low price tag. Alan Shearer, I, I, I cost one-fifth of what Alan Shearer cost, and that's what Man United were trying to buy when they ended up with me. Man United obviously wanted Guardiola, didn't get him. I got totally underestimated as a player. Everyone said I'd be six months in the reserves. It took me time, and yet I did this, this, and this. And he, he does it in, I think, quite a charming way, quite an understated way. And I do take the point that it's it's based along a time that's that's it's based about him as a player rather than as a manager. I presume that's the premise on which he agreed to do the piece for Jonathan Norcroft. But I do think the great, the great failure of the piece. And and I do agree with you, Joe, that I think it's a hugely missed opportunity. Is it, it, it talks about the field and what happened on the field. And it never really goes in to what happened off the field. Like there's a line there about how his parents didn't come to the champions league final because they were, Play people who were they weren't that type of people. They preferred hard work and they worked themselves, and they 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 didn't feel the need to travel and take a day off work. And I think there's something interesting in that, and you've referred to that yourself. But it, I think the best interviews with 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 why the Mark Noble interview is so good and so interesting because you get a sense of what he's like as a person off the field rather than recounting 
various moments on the field. Yeah. Yeah, I must say, I thought it was in that respect. OK, if you if we accept the premise, it's going to be about 25 years since you scored on your United debut and it's to mark the anniversary. That's we accept the premise, although I, I get what you're saying, Dion, as well. But once you get into it, like it's just a couple of times I'm thinking, oh, man, like we should really develop this and get to know him a bit better. So that point you mentioned, the fact they get on to the parents not being at the Champions League final by mentioning that, well, the parents weren't there for the debut either. His then girlfriend, now wife, was. But then Northcroft says, then again, nor did his parents attend the 99 Champions League final. As unfussy down-to-earth people with jobs, they regarded taking days off work as an indulgence. My mother and father were at home just watching it on telly. That's the best way for the old guard. Keep it low-key, is what Solskjaer says. And I just kind of thought there, like, that's a real stop the presses moment. Like, so suddenly I want to know... Are your parents big football fans? Like, would your dad come to many games? What if it turns out his dad's only been to 10 games, you know? Um, do you th- did you try and get them to come to the Champions League final? Uh, are they still alive? You know, suddenly, like, there's a chance to get to know the Manchester United manager who can't, for obvious reasons, talk with total honesty about what's going on at the moment. But, so, like, his world and his life and, like, what it meant for his family for him to make it at Manchester United when, you know, it was against all expectations. I just kind of thought... God, like, dig in there. He's he's opened the door for you. Like, he's told you, your parents, my parents didn't go to a Champions League final where I scored the winner, the most iconic goal, arguably, of um, the 20th century in the history of that club. Maybe, I guess, George Best against Benfica and one or two others. And they were at home because they saw taking a day off work as an indulgence. I just think, we've got 20 minutes to talk about your family here. Like, we're, we're going deep on this. And then even... You know, how, he asked him, how have you changed in 25 years? He said, I've become more confident. Talks about, um, you have to show a strong mental character. I couldn't be the manager of Man United if I wasn't strong-minded, you know, like in the dressing room. And again, a little bit like what you're saying, Paul, there's so much going on in that dressing room where he was a player. Like he references Roy Keane earlier on in the interview about how, you know, you don't need yes men to tell you you played well. You just, you do, well, <laughs> I was going to use that Roy Keane, you do your job. But, um, you know, you, you, you listen to one or two people and then you block out the noise. But again, that, that Manchester United dressing room full of some tough characters, that probably could have been teased out a bit more because he does mention like in that dressing room, you had to kind of grow up quite quickly and you had to be a strong person in that dressing room. Again, I thought that's a door open into all these personalities. So like it's not to hammer the piece. I just felt it was very um, cosmetic, superficial stuff. And there was probably a chance there to get a bit deeper because I do think, Dion, the premise of like 25 years since you scored on your debut, that's quite a relaxing premise for the interviewee. Like there's a degree of, okay, I don't have to watch out for too many bombs here. And you might have got, you know, I, I, I don't. I didn't know anything. Yeah. I don't know anything about his background. Like I don't know. I don't know anything about his his family really. And he's been a big fo- figure in football for twenty five years. But I, I don't know um, uh, how much more Solskjaer is going to give on those things um, beyond what he does say in this interview. So wouldn't it be interesting though to get an insight where I pushed him and the, well, the, yeah, no, the shutters was, came down even that's an insight I, you know I agree with you yeah that's and I think that is something that uh, um, uh, lots and we're you know anyone who's who's written about football is probably guilty of this too you know you you tend there there are times when you don't write uh, the background to it or you don't write around it as much or, or people don't write around it as much as they as as they could and um, and there is always a, a sense of, you know, uh, 
are there sometimes a sense, uh, let me put it that way, that you know you, you're going if you're if you're interviewing somebody who you're going to want to talk to again, mm. that you're not going to do anything that says that somehow says this guy doesn't want to get into this stuff. This guy is really defensive, really doesn't you know whatever way you want to write about it, um, that doesn't. There's, there's a lot of times um, when you're dealing with people who you're going to go back to again, that that doesn't happen as much as it should and that i agree like look looking at the interview and at those moments it's like that that at least would give you some insight that when you when you if you if he was pressed on it he didn't want he didn't want to go there um but i do feel from Salskar's point of view i'm going to hope you know retain this position that as manager of manchester united i think he needs to like somehow get away from it's great it's a lovely premise a nice comforting premise, a nice idea if i was Solskjaer, i'd be saying I, I i don't want to be i don't want to be defined as a as a player for manchester united anymore mm. um but i think it is one of his great um it was one of one of the strongest cards he has as manchester united manager still even with you know a, a better season last year even with a good start to the premier league this year it is still um something that he he has and it is is why he's got why he got the job um uh and again that's that's a difference with with, with pep Guardiola or your Klopp or anybody his his connections to the club are why he's there um and i but i do feel that it, it's something now that he he should really um move away from yeah yeah um, soccer pages are interesting today though aren't they Mainly because there's not really a whole pile in them, um, except it shows you the extent to which okay there is the game there and people love the game, but it's also that celebrity industry around it and you can see see that churn of new heroes, people talking about Harvey Elliott, eighteen year old, how he played for Liverpool yesterday, you know the the debate will Pogba stay or will he go. Is Lukaku somehow transformed by his two years of Italy and going to win the the, the championship with um, for, for Chelsea? Seems to be the way. And already, and this to me is extraordinary. But two day, two games into the season, speculation about Mikel Arteta and will he be gone by Christmas in two different newspapers? That's that's put out, and it's this it's this constant kind of filler and endless speculation by people who really. Seems to me are are they're they're not they're they're not drawing on hard evidence in a lot of cases. And then f- the most amusing bit of all actually was Jurgen Klopp's um, interview, which I think Jurgen Klopp gets such an easy pass from a lot of people in the media because he's likable and he does it with a smile. But him talking about how Liverpool were treated by Burnley yesterday was it was really amusing. He clearly has a bee in his bonnet about about Burnley but if another manager came out with what he said my god they'd be slaughtered what did he say remind us oh he talked about how it, it was it was like wrestling how soccer had gone back 10-15 years because the play was being let run a bit more and he referenced a couple of tackles and yeah. I don't know anybody who saw any tackles in that game who would have thought that they were unduly difficult mm. yeah I, I think uh, I know I, I take I, I think the, the 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 coverage and the way it, it has evolved in football is just again, it does it it, it does just it is because of that um, 
demand for interest and you know we, you can talk I, I would say an awful lot of those story stories they're they're coming and most of them are coming from somewhere it doesn't mean <clears throat> it doesn't mean they're right and journalists could possibly sometimes do more to uh find out different ver- but like the are 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 get are get more sources on various things but they are being they are coming from somewhere um and it does tell you about the appetite for people have for certain elements of of the uh of the periphery of football and like transfers being transfers being the like the f- most phenomenal one and the most and the one that actually is 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 i think closest to a kind of an addiction for people yeah uh it is an endorphin rush uh for transfers that actually um really doesn't bear any relation to what the transfer itself is going to do for your club it's just give me some transfer news that's what <laughs> that's what so many fans they want just want that hit give me a name actually the <laughs> the less i know about this person the better yes you know like you know, because you will see the very unadventurous dealings in the transfer market, or you know, unoriginal. Like if 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 a, if a club signs a couple of like not not you know, not Jack Grealish or Harry Kane, but just sort of a couple of well-known English players, it's uh, seen as something kind of you know a failure of the scouting system. Whereas if they can bring you, so if if the fans can be delivered uh, somebody um, mysterious. Um, it it it's all the better, but it is it is it is it is being driven. It isn't. It is being driven by this demand for it. For uh, um, you know, isn't there, isn't the famous? I'm not going to. I'm going to get the journalist wrong here, but there's a Liverpool. I won't. I won't say who it was. There's a Liverpool uh, a journalist who covers Liverpool who a few years ago tweeted that uh, he just stepped out and he come back to find his his house on fire. Um, his house was literally on fire, and the first reply to it was, "Any news on Suarez?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and, you know, and that's it. Like, it's like, just give me what I want here, which is some news, on, some transfer news, in, out, whatever. And at this time of the season, year, season with the transfer window still open, it, it does, it does, you know, Harry Kane. Uh, all those things that it does it does play a huge part in it and it's fascinating right and it 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 sells hope to people and if you if you i think my favorite website at the moment or favorite story which every day and you're right the on it and it's it there's an addiction to it bbc sport aggregate the transfer stories from across the british newspapers and and beyond uh, on a day on their transfer latest um thing and it it, it basically gives you a redux version of every possible mm. transfer that may or may not take place, and there is something absolutely compelling about the endless speculation. And you, but you can't help yourself. Like I, yeah, you know, there, there are Twitter accounts that you know we all probably know that aren't uh, in any way legitimate that you know deal in transfer rumors. But once they put it into your head, it's like googling an illness. You know, <laughs> once you put it into your head, you're like, oh, God, maybe I do have that. Um, uh, or maybe like you know they, they, you know uh, you know Arsenal ready to sign Messi or something and you're like oh that would be that's interesting that could work and it just needs to just it just needs to appear ridiculously anywhere and it kind of it it does something 
it is an it just provides a, a little endorphin kick and it doesn't last very long and it's like give me another one and so i think it was uh john henry when he bought liverpool um whenever in 2010 or 2011 he did say um you can always recover you can recover from the players you don't sign a lot better than you can recover from the players you do and that kind of and like liverpool for, are actually a club that are getting there there's a section of their supporters who are kind of furious with them at the moment for not spending enough in the transfer market and like that has been one of their especially since Klopp arrived they have been very restrained in going for the people they want to sign um but it does go counter to um that sort of sort of insatiable and it is insatiable insatiable desire for as, as Paul says for hope hmm. hope of uh different variety on pages 18 and 19 of the Sunday Independence. So the Paralympic Games getting underway and we have on the left hand side Clina Foley talking to Brittany Arends. So in a wheelchair since she was age nine after a horrific car crash back in June of 2009. Uh, South African family moved over to Ireland uh, County Cavan and she's at the Paralympics. Only uh, the top eight in um, her weight class qualified for the Paralympics. So it was a big achievement to get there. She's a weightlifter. Uh, powerlifting is her uh, sport. And uh, again, just really interesting piece and said to Kleena Foley, I lost most of my previous friends because they couldn't see me as the same person. Some of them turned their backs on me because I was just too much of a burden. They looked at me differently. So I made different friends and better friends now. And uh, she's looking forward to her Paralympic debut. And we wish her well. And then on the other page, Paul Kimmage in conversation with Mark Rowan, who has had his Paralympics journey. He's coming back to, to be an analyst for RTE and he has won, you know, medals and been a world champion in paracycling. And uh, he's at an interesting point in that he's 40 now and he's 20 years paralyzed and had 20 years not being paralyzed. And, you know, it, amazing story. And, and they get into the heart of it, what, it, what it's like. And um, I must confess as a probably someone silly who gets in a motorbike himself. I don't like reading the following paragraph, but you can't uh, forget it when you read it. November, Sunday, 2001. He left a girlfriend's apartment in Athlone on a 400cc motorbike for a football game. At 9.23 that morning, he was the Bull Rowan, an apprentice electrician gifted miner from Westmeath with his hand on a throttle and the world at his feet. At, at 9.24, he was a limp piece of meat swinging from a tree, four crushed vertebrae, four compound fractures in his right leg, broken left foot, four broken ribs, a torn aorta, broken sternum, broken clavicle and a bleed on his spinal cord. And uh, it's now a Thursday afternoon, 20 years on. He's sitting in a small cafe in the Algarve where he lives now and getting ready to fly back to Dublin to do the analysis. 20 in the wheelchair, 20 out, he smiles. The same person, but two lives. When is the last time it hurt, I ask, says uh, Paul Kimmage. The last time I was upset? Yeah. About being disabled? Yeah. Jesus, long time ago. You've seen me here. My life is good. Uh, he says he always used to mark the anniversary, November 4th. He'd go to America, watch a basketball game or whatever. And uh, he says, for those first five years, everything about your old life is still fresh. The football you played, the job you had, there's part of you thinking maybe they'll find a cure. And uh, he goes on to talk about finding sport in a wheelchair and how it changed his life, really, and rescued him a touch. Uh, one other point he makes about the whole experience, it teaches you patience, it teaches you tolerance and you learn the importance of mental strength about putting things into perspective and just being uh, 
uh, grateful. And so of the Paralympics, it's not about the medals, not about the superhero thing. It's about the eight-year-old in the wheelchair, the 13-year-old with a head injury, the 15-year-old who's just had a limb amputated to help them live and hope. And uh, I suppose, uh, Paul, that's a far more interesting hope than uh, transfer speculation in the Premier League. So we, we, we began this show talking about dementia and the impact, the adverse impact that sport has on people's lives. And this is this is the absolute opposite. The 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 column or the story by Kleena Foley on Brittany Renze is it's brilliant. It's extremely moving when someone spends a a year in hospital and then sort of tells a story basically of the loss of friends and then life changing and finding finding a way through sport. You cannot but be moved. And when you turn to Paul Kimmage's article, Paul Kimmage, I think is I think this is what he does best. How he gets into stories and lives behind and behind just the actual sport and finds a different angle. He did it with Matt Hampson, the English rugby player, the under twenty one player. If people don't know the book. It's a book called Engaged that um, Paul Kimmage did with Matt Hampson. Matt Hampson was a rugby player who, in two thousand and five, was in a practice scrum for an English under twenty one rugby session, and he ended up paralyzed after that and just it's a, it's a really brilliant book very moving very interesting and very funny actually in 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 places and this article is like that it's funny in places and the there the, there are two lines in it that i think get the heart of of mark rowan's story the first is the same person but two lives in how he talks about his life before and after that accident and the second is it's not about the medals and in that, he moves on and talks about identity. And there's an awful lot made when people talk about sport and particularly GEA about winning for a club or winning for a county or doing this for a parish or for your family or something. Ultimately in sport, the first and last end of it is yourself and what it does for yourself and what it tells you about yourself. And you can see how through this article, how Mark Rohan used sport to find a way back from what was an exceptionally tough and difficult position. And again, it comes down to that. He says it's not about the medals. It doesn't mean that he didn't go and pursue them, but it was the pursuit of the medal rather than the actual medal themselves. And it's not like he walks around with them pinned to his chest as a demonstration of what he's won. It's what he is, it, it is what it has given him. Mm. Dion, final word from you on this. I mean, two great uh, yeah. ways to cover the Paralympic Games. Two great pieces. Uh, yeah, no, they're... they're they're both really powerful pieces, and I'd echo everything uh, Paul says. And 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 the Kimmage piece really is—it's uh, arresting, you know. It is um, and moving and funny. Um, as a as an aside, I thought it was great that he he quoted the the great comedian Sean Locke, who died last week at the end, and. Uh, um, it's uh, just as an aside. I I, I like that because you know Sean Locke. Uh, that was a very that was a, such a Brilliant. shocking event in itself. You know that. Um, but uh, as someone who spent a lot of last week looking at Sean Locke videos on YouTube, I, uh, I I I was touched by that. But I just felt the whole thing, as you said, like that. There's that that um, ability to kind of you know stop you in your tracks and make you 
read a piece and think differently. And again, we you know we started. This is about to mention. We started talking about what sport and what professional sport are the differences between uh, exercise and professional sport or participating and professional sport. Um, and there's so much of that in the in this story, in the Mark Rowan story, and. You know, the, the passage you quoted, Joe, when he says that, like, you know, you, you never think that people will move beyond like this is this is my own ignorance. But you think you, you, you see this and you, you assume that a person in some ways spends, you know, is now going to spend the rest of the time mourning that lot, that that previous life, yes, that lost life. Yes. You think that's it now. Uh, and um and you know there there are many examples in many different areas where you you just read people's stories and you go of course not not no, of course not but it is possible it is possible to 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 move beyond it um, and uh, you know even just the story about when when he had the accident and he said you know and because his life was defined by 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 sport and by football and he says you know his friend his boyhood friend was sitting by his bed and he said it was the first time. I actually broke down. I said, Tom, I think I'm fucked here. I don't think I'll ever play football again. That was my whole focus, football. But I was also starting to realize that it meant a lot more. And I was fright frightened. How is this going to play out? I thought I was a man. I thought I knew everything. I was tall, six foot, playing county football, no problem with women. And then suddenly you're this little guy in a wheelchair who needs to be helped up steps. Um, and it's so brute, it's so honest without it ever being um, uh, a self-pitying piece. It's so far from a self-pitying piece yeah. uh, that you could imagine. No, it's it's um, it's really it's it's a, it's, a, it's a great piece. Fellas, thanks so much. That flew by. We've been going for an hour and a half, so I think it's time to wrap it up. Thank you so much for the time. Enjoy the uh, All-Ireland Hurling Final and the rest of your afternoon. Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency, of course, and Paul Rouse, Professor of History at UCD. Thanks, gents. Thanks a million, Joe. Thanks, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.